And now please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark 8:22 through 9:1. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. Amen. Well, good morning. just want to acknowledge how beautiful it is right now. It's great to be with you. Let's pray once more as we get started. <clears throat> God in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you that we can come here and that we can open your word to hear what you have for us. And I pray that this message today would be helpful 
for all who hear it, that the words of Mark 8, we would hear them, that we would receive them in faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Something I have taken for granted are my eyes and my eyesight. I'm not old, but I'm getting older. And I've often heard that something I can expect is for aging eyes to become less clear. And I know I could get on just as well not seeing all that clearly, but of all the things that become more difficult, what is most sad to me about that possible future is how much more difficult it might be to see people clearly, those that I love. Because our sight is crucial to getting to know people. A professor of mine, Michael Gloda, reflecting on the ironic blessing, gets at this from another angle. As I read his book, he mentions a condition I'd never heard before, probably will mispronounce it. It's called prosopagnosia. It is a neurological condition in which a person suffers from face blindness. In the worst cases, close friends, family members, even your own reflection is unrecognizable. It's tragic. In our passage, the disciples didn't suffer from aging eyes or prosopagnosia, but spiritual blindness. They could see, but it was a blurred vision. It was partial. Growing up, I can remember going to the doctor, and you take these eye exams, right? You put you on one end of the room, and on the other side of the room, there hung a chart with letters. And it began with a huge single letter, E, and then from there, letters would increase in number, but decrease in size. So under E, you'd have two more letters, and under those three, and under those four, and five, and so forth, but they get smaller and smaller. In his own way, I think Mark presents his own spiritual eye test to the disciples. And what we read are the results of that test, and they're not good. They rightly see the first letter at the top of that chart, C for Christ, But then beyond that, it's blurry all the way down. The rest of that charge, as Christ goes on to say, it involves rejection, suffering, death, and to top it all off, a demand on those who follow him to die to self. But all that, all that is blurry to them. They can't see it. This passage is instructive for all of us, no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus, whether you regard him as the most important person in your life or you're considering him for the first time, we all have to answer the question, Are we seeing clearly? That's my question this morning. Are you seeing clearly? Are you seeing clearly? The disciples had the right title, but they had the wrong job description. If the disciples were to have their souls completely satisfied and secure, then Jesus had to show them that they were not seeing clearly. Now, before jumping into chapter 8, let me jog your memory just a little bit, because we haven't been in Mark since November You know, structurally, there's three sections to Mark. First, Jesus in Galilee, right? Mark 1 all the way to Mark 8, 21. And the the uniqueness of the first section that we've been in is on the authority and power of the Messiah. And today, our passage is the beginning of the second section in Mark, starting at 8, 22, ending at 10, 52. And this second stage is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, And the focus is what makes it unique, because it focuses on the suffering nature of the Messiah. In this section, Jesus tells his disciples three times that he will die, rise again after three days. 
Ours is the first of those three predictions. And then the final section is Jesus in Jerusalem, beginning in 11.1, ending in 16.8. And there, of course, the focus is on the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And as believers and readers today, it's a privilege to read Scripture this side of the cross, because as we'll see, the death and resurrection of Christ makes all the difference. If we want clarity on who Jesus is as the Christ, then we must grasp that the Christ and the cross go hand in hand. And if we grasp that clearly, we will live differently. So let's look at the first verses, 22 to 26. And read it again. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent them to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. All right, if you're like me, when you hear those verses, you think, isn't it strange that there's a two-stage healing? Uh, why didn't it work the first time? Wouldn't God be able to heal someone? But we don't need to doubt Jesus' power. As we just said, the whole first section of Mark shows us again and again that Jesus, the Messiah, has power and authority. And we've been seeing that he has authority and power to calm storms, cast out demons, feed thousands, and so on. So when we arrive at this curious interaction between Jesus and the blind man, we, shouldn't, we should come to it not questioning Jesus' power, but his purpose. And with that perspective, we see that this miracle has a message, acts as a message. Scholars refer to it as an enacted parable, which is to say the blindness of this man represents the spiritual blindness of the disciples. And just as this man had to go through stages of healing to see, so too the disciples must go through stages of healing as well. As Peter will show us in a minute, they've been privileged with the first stage of healing. It's significant that Peter calls Jesus the Christ, but they lack that second stage of clarity. But before moving on too quickly, another reason to note why it would be a mistake to question the power of Jesus. Look at verse 22. How did the blind man end up at Jesus' feet? Some people brought him. We know nothing about these people except their actions. And the verbs are strong. They brought him to Jesus and begged him. They begged him to touch him. They are a nameless bunch, but we know that they had a conviction that Jesus could heal and a care for the blind man to bring him to Jesus. Now, as we've seen in the past, crowds who have been around Jesus, they didn't have spiritual clarity either. These folks very well could have viewed Jesus as the latest wonder-working guru. Their motives may have been way off, but still their actions are exemplary for us because we should have greater conviction in who Christ is and what he can do. Greater care for those around us who need Jesus' help. So what is your task as a Christian, as a messenger of God's good news? It's not to make people see. That power doesn't lie with you or me. We can't make people see. We bring people to Jesus. We share Christ. We show how Christ makes a difference. We plead with them to see Christ in the scriptures, but we don't have power to make them see. 
If we want people to be rid of spiritual blindness, we beg Jesus to make them see, to help them see. We pray like Bruce challenged us to do last week. And here's my point from these first five verses. Because Jesus Christ alone gives spiritual sight, we must bring the spiritually blind to him. Because Jesus Christ alone gives spiritual sight, we must bring the spiritually blind to him. Jesus healed this man in two stages, a two-stage healing that pictures the gradual clarity of sight the disciples possess and gain. All right, let's shift now, verse 27 to 23. Read it once more just to hear it in our minds again. Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, plainly. Some translations say boldly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, here we have Peter's eye exam results. (laughs) He got the top of the chart right. Jesus is the Christ. But the rest of the chart is blurry. Now, we don't know with certainty what was in the mind of Peter, but I think we can reasonably infer what was going on in his mind. Consider this. The title Christ comes from the term Hebrew term Messiah, a term which meant anointed one. In the Old Testament, you would anoint an object or a person to signify that that person or thing is set apart for service to God, uniquely set apart for service to God. And in the Old Testament, you'll read about altars, pillars, shields, all sorts of objects being anointed with oil for service to God. But more importantly, we read of prophets, priests, kings being anointed. But out of all of those uses, what stands above the rest is the repeated mention and understanding of Israel's king as the Lord's anointed. At a major point in Israel's history, God gives a huge promise to King David. 2 Samuel 7, God tells David that a man will be born from his lineage who will have an everlasting kingdom. And from then on, as the Old Testament continues, you encounter prophecies that speak of a kingly Davidic figure to come who will set everything right. And with that brief sketch in mind, maybe you can understand just a little bit how all that contributed to a triumphalist conception of what the Christ would come and do. Now, I would argue that Peter's conception of the Christ was colored by this triumphalist view which assumed Christ would liberate Jews from under Roman rule, take back Jerusalem with force. But that is a problematic conception of Christ. Of course, if you're not convinced by that, if you don't think Peter's error was a nationalistic one, that's okay for another perspective. Dietrich Bonhoeffer suggests that Peter's error was selfishness, 
specifically an unwillingness to suffer. But whatever you or I think about what was going on in Peter's mind, Jesus tells us in verse 33, Peter's error was that he was more concerned with the things of man than the things of God. Put it another way, Peter's error was that his conception of Christ was too small, too little. Let me explain. How many of you, when you read this text, feel like Jesus' response is a little harsh? Like, why is he responding to Peter this way? However, Jesus is completely justified in responding to Peter this way. Imagine with me that I'm the best man in my, in my friend's wedding. I'm going to call him Brad. And Brad is getting married to a really nice girl named Maddie. And Brad and Maddie ask the whole bridal party to come out to the venue where they're getting ready to get married, right, to help set up and decorate and practice for the big day. And as we're setting up, excuse me, I meet the hostess of the venue, and her name is Candace, and she's great. And imagine after I meet her, I go to Brad and I say, hey, man, I just met this girl, Candace. She's super nice. Uh, I think you guys would hit it off. Like, you should go and talk to her. I, I really think you and Candace could, could be a thing. Like, you should try cards. What would Brad say to me? Brad might hit me. <laughs> but Brad would justifiably be upset with me, right? You'd tell me, Eric, why are we here? What are we, what are we doing in this room? Like, you're holding chairs. What is the purpose of that? We aren't here just for the fun of it. Ever since I made a commitment to Maddie, there's been a plan set in motion leading up to this day. I'm getting married in a matter of hours. How dare you try and turn me away from her? When Jesus arrives on the scene, he arrives to execute a plan that has been set in motion from the very beginning. In the first pages of our Bibles, we see, one, that God made everything and it was good. And two, that despite making our first parents holy and happy, they listened to the serpent and sinned against God. And as a consequence, brokenness and sin, it plagues the world. We feel it now. But on page two of the Bible, we're given a hope, a promise, that the offspring of the woman, a son yet to be born, will crush that serpent at the expense of harm to himself. And as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, we see two things, the faithlessness of God's people, but the faithfulness of God. And as you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on, you notice God's people keep sinning. But despite all of that, God's plan is unfolding. He cannot be thwarted. And he gives glimpses of a glorious future to come in the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and more. And so when Jesus arrives as the Christ, he arrives with a purpose to execute the redemptive plan of God, which has been set in motion for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And in Mark, Jesus is on the brink of the next massive stage of God's redemptive plan. We're only weeks away from Jesus' crucifixion. And he's trying to prepare his disciples that something world-altering is about to take place. And then here comes Peter, <laughs> rebuking Jesus for all this talk of suffering and death. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He's blind. 
He doesn't see that whatever glorious future the Christ would bring about can't happen apart from the cross. You know, it makes me want to grab Peter by the shoulders, shoulders, tell him, ask him, like, do you see what you're suggesting? The consequences of Christ not going to the cross means no redemption for God's people, no restoration of all things, no glorious future, only ruin, only ruin. So whatever was swimming in Peter's mind, whether it was some nationalistic hope of liberation or just self-preservation, you'll agree that either of those pale in comparison to God's big redemptive plan. There is no glorious future without this gruesome death. Or to be pithy, if you remove the cross, there is only loss. Again, here is Jesus on the brink of the next necessary step of God's redemptive plan. And Peter's confronting him, saying, Jesus, this is not a good idea. (laughs) I don't think you understand what you're saying. But what Peter failed to see in this moment is that this is the only good idea. This is the idea. You are the one without understanding. And any opposition to this unfolding grand redemptive plan of God is more in keeping with Satan than what God wants. So here's the main point from this section. Because Jesus Christ had to face the cross, we must understand Christ in light of the cross. Hand in hand. Because Jesus Christ had to face the cross, we must understand Christ in light of the cross. Now you may rightly wonder, okay, Eric, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to understand Christ in light of the cross? Such a huge question, such a huge question. And if you took that question and you had it in your mind as you read the New Testament, you would get a lot of great answers because the biblical authors have so much to say on the cross and its relevance for us. But if we just confine ourselves here to Mark 8, this text before us, There's two things I would say. First, if we understand Christ in light of the cross, we will see the cross as supremely good, as supremely good, which is to say, you don't only see the cross as a historical event or an essential doctrine of orthodoxy. Of course, regarding cross, excuse me, regarding the cross as both a historical event and a necessary component to orthodoxy is required. (laughs) We cannot shed any shadow on that. For example, those of you in the Apostles' Creed class, you know, we see that historical events and the creed itself is a metric of orthodoxy. So much so that if you claim to be a Christian, but you deny that Jesus really suffered at the hands of a Roman named Pontius Pilate, and if you deny that Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day risen from the dead, that if you deny either of those, the church can credibly deny your claim to Christianity. It's that essential. Affirming all that is vital. But what I'm getting at when I say that we need to see the cross as supremely good is that in your heart of hearts, you know that the cross is a good thing. You're not confused about why Jesus had to face the cross. Rather, you're so thankful that he did. You're not criticizing God for his method of redemption, but you praise him for sticking to the plan. 
You are grateful for the cross because personally you know without it you'd have no hope. So we see the cross as supremely good. Second, if we understand Christ in light of the cross, we will see our little plans in service to God's big plan. We will see our little plans in service to God's big plan, not the other way around. The pill that is hard to swallow is that Peter's error can be our error too. Whatever was going on in Peter's mind, he felt that he could tell the Christ what to do. That he could get Christ to abandon whatever plan he had and get Christ on board to his plans. But that's not how it works. And yet as someone who's been guilty of this myself, we can get to thinking, man, I've got this great plan for my life, for my ministry, for my family, for my work, whatever it is. God, you got to get on board with this. <laughs> got to get on board with this. Now, I don't want to cast a shadow on supplication. We have to express our need and our dependence on God. The distinction is one of disposition. Do we think we know better than God? Do our prayers rise from a heart that demands first? Do we ever feel as though God is doing something wrong? Do we find ourselves thinking, if God took his marching orders from me, things would be better for everyone? You know, if you're guilty of any of that, as I have been, then I invite you to take a look at the cross to consider God's great redemptive plan to redeem his people, to restore all things. A plan set in motion for hundreds of years. And I pray that God's great plan gives you perspective that you would see how small our plans are compared to God's great plan for us. Peter, in this moment, is spiritually blind. He cannot fathom how the cross would be supremely good. Couldn't comprehend the redemptive plan of God set in motion for hundreds of years. Because again, Peter's view of Christ, his view of Christ, shouldn't face the cross. His Christ, in his mind, shouldn't face a cross. And so Jesus has work to do. And calling the crowds and the disciples takes them to school. Classes in session. He doubles down on the crucifixion to point out, listen, the cross is not only necessary for the Christ, it defines what it means to follow the Christ, right? It's not just for me, it's for you. Not just for me, it's for you. Peter, you, listen, the cross is important. Listen to verses 34 to 38 again. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Again, Jesus is speaking clearly, forcefully. <clears throat> In verse 34, it outlines that definition, prerequisites for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're going to deny yourself, 
take up your cross and follow Jesus. And then from there, verses 35 to 38, is Jesus' fourfold justification for his prerequisites. And we'll consider those in a a moment. Before we do, consider just the the radical nature of Jesus' call to his disciples and to this crowd. Absolutely radical. Crosses have become ubiquitous to us. And because no one uses crosses as a form of capital punishment anymore, which is a good thing, our modern world has lost sight of its meaning and significance. But to the ancient world, crucifixion is something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Non-Christian authors describe the practice of crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting penalty. It is a grotesque and striking image, and yet that's the image Jesus employs for any who would follow him. Why? The sense of what Jesus is saying here is that you have to die to yourself if you want to follow him. You have to be willing to give up everything to follow him. As one author states it, Jesus does not ask for modest adjustments to our lives, but a complete overhaul of our behavior. To quote another author, they say, the goal of taking up one's cross is not some pathological self-abasement or martyr complex, but being free to follow Jesus. Self-denial means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with total obedience to, total dependence on Jesus. It is a radical call. It does cost everything to follow him. But as Jesus goes on to say, if you do lose everything to follow him, even your life, you've made a profit. Because the calculus that Jesus has in mind is not one that the world can understand. Look at verses 36 to 37. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For Jesus, what is at stake in all of this are souls. Souls are at stake. Either souls are saved, verse 35, or souls are judged, verse 38. There's no in-between. You either choose the world and forfeit your soul, or you choose Christ and your soul is saved. And to me, to speak of the salvation of souls includes ultimate satisfaction and security. Excuse me, satisfaction and security. Uh, the famous words of Augustine come to mind when he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It's a great quote. You know, our hearts and our souls long, they have desires. And Jesus knows that what the world has to offer is tantalizing. And people don't give it a second thought, but people instinctively kind of know this. For example, you have surely heard about people talking about soulmates. And what is meant by that? Why do people search for a soulmate? It goes something like this, right? I'm single and I'm dissatisfied right now. If only I could find my soulmate, then I would be satisfied. But we do this with all sorts of stuff. If only I had wealth, I'd be satisfied. If only I had this experience, I'd be satisfied. If only I had this position, I'd be satisfied. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that if we actually received all the wealth in the world, had every experience under the sun, got any position we wanted, and be in a relationship we always dreamed of, 
If we got all of that but didn't have Jesus, we'd be settling for less. We'd be settling for less. If we ever get to thinking that Jesus is insignificant or that he's not as significant as all this other stuff in this world, then you're not seeing clearly. We're not seeing clearly. But if we give up everything for Jesus, we gain Jesus. And only he can give us satisfaction and security. Only he can save the soul. You know, if you could put Jesus on a scale to determine what was heavier, what was more significant, if you put Jesus on one half of the scale and on the other half you load it up with everything your heart desires, everything your soul desires, you name that list, you fill it out. If you place the whole world on that scale, it wouldn't budge. It wouldn't move for a second. Because Christ is so much more weighty, so much more significant than anything else. Here's the simple takeaway from this section. Because Jesus Christ can save our souls, we must die to ourselves and follow him. Because Jesus Christ can save our souls, we must die to ourselves and follow him. If we claim to have clarity on who Jesus is, we will do this. We will deny ourselves and intentionally pursue Jesus. And for those of you who have yet to follow Christ, the invitation is here. Don't settle for less. Find your soul's satisfaction and security in Christ. You will not find it in a soulmate, in wealth, in experience, or anything else. Come to Jesus, empty-handed, and follow him. And for those of us who have done that, but we're straying, come back. (laughs) See Jesus as the most significant person in your life, that he is worth giving up everything for. One more verse. I'm going to keep this short. 9-1, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's a really curious thing that Jesus is saying here. He's predicting something that will happen in their lifetime. Now, you'll notice that this verse is lumped in with chapter 9 rather than chapter 8. There's a lot of interesting theories for why that might be, but what's important for us to note is that these words are the conclusion of the conversation Jesus is having in chapter 8, but it also happens to be a transition to what's to come and these reflection, this event of the transfiguration which is a manifestation of God's power. But I'm convinced that when Jesus says, you will see the kingdom of God in power before you die, that what Jesus has in mind is everything he's just talked about in chapter 8, verse 31. Right? Crucifixion and resurrection. In their lifetime, the disciples will see God's power on display in a way that they never thought possible. And when they do, that is when they experience the second stage of clarity, of healing. Once Jesus dies and rises again, then the disciples receive spiritual clarity. Only after crucifixion and resurrection do they understand what Jesus was up to. 
but don't just take my word for it. Let's look at the Bible. This is where I'll conclude. Okay, for most of my message, I've been picking on Peter. (laughs) Uh, Justifiably so. Because before the cross in Mark, he is a negative example to us. But after the cross, Peter will continue to have his blunders, for those of you who have read your Bibles. But the Peter we encounter in the New Testament after the cross, that's a new man. A Peter who sees Christ clearly. A Peter who is enamored with and captivated by the things of God. Listen to these words penned by Peter later in his life. They're from his first letter. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Those are the words of a man who sees clearly, a man whose soul is satisfied and secured in Jesus, a man who understands that God's big redemptive plan puts everything in perspective, even if necessary, right? A man who knows that the things of God are vastly better than the things of man. And given the chance, I think Peter would tell us, hey, if Christ can help me, (laughs) the guy who Jesus called Satan, he can definitely help you too. The death and resurrection of Christ made all the difference for Peter. And so in his letter, Peter gives us an important example, a positive example of what it means to see Christ clearly and thus live life differently. So are you seeing clearly? Do you see Jesus clearly? That is the question we all have to answer, and it matters. It matters how we answer. To close, I'll leave you with a summation of what we've talked about today. Because Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus is the Christ, we must bring the blind to him, understand him in light of the cross, die to ourselves, and follow him. It matters that Jesus is the Christ for our lives. Once more, Jesus is the Christ. We must bring the blind to him, understand him in light of the cross, die to ourselves, and follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, that you do cause us to be born again, and that we can have this eternal unshaking hope as a result of your son's death. 
that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Help us, God, to keep a perspective formed by the things of God which show that anything this life has to offer is so small compared to you. Help us, God, to do this in our own lives and help us, God, as we speak to others to show them just how incredible you are. Help us, God, not to settle for less, but to find our soul's satisfaction and security in you. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.